Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Debbie Show, and thank you so much for joining me today to have this conversation about your new book. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Raz. So emotionally disturbed, what does that even mean? So emotionally disturbed is a category or a term that was used to describe children. Um, It's still used today, but it really came into existence in the 1930s and 1940s to describe a particular new category of child. An emotionally disturbed child was a child who was really um, had had tried to be helped by many different varieties of people, parents, teachers, uh, other people in the community, and really everybody had given up on that child. And in some ways, the emotionally disturbed child was defined in that way as a child who couldn't really be helped by most resources in the family or community. Um, But it also referred to a child whose behavior was abnormal, whether that child acted out, was violent or rambunctious, or was abnormally quiet or restrained in ways that were deemed abnormal. But that category of describing children didn't actually exist prior to the 1930s or so. And today, while you can see it here and there, its meaning as a pathologic category of person um, that actually drove changes in health policy and medical and psychiatric care really started to decline in about the 1980s. And as we know, there are different kinds of people that can come and go in history as Ian Hacking has described. Um, And this is, I think, an example of that. It's not that these children didn't exist before the 30s or that they don't exist now, but that using this term as a particular way to talk about this group of people is a very historically specific concept. So there was a period of time in which we thought about children in in these terms, that they were emotionally disturbed. Was it a category of compassion or of pathology or maybe a little bit of both? You know, if you look at it, do you think it was a productive way to think about kids? Oh, that's really a very interesting group of questions. So I think that it was primarily a description of pathology, a description of an abnormal way of being in the world. Um, And that abnormal way of being was primarily, you know, based on a child's behavior. And it was deemed to sort of be a result of the child's relationships with family members. It wasn't necessarily that the mother had deprived a child of love or the father had beaten the child, but in fact, it also incorporated the ways in which the child interacted 
to, you know, with his or her parents and responded to those interactions. And so um, in some ways it was also a term of compassion because many of these children had been exposed to um, sometimes very traumatic events in their upbringing. But on the other hand, the child, as, as mental health experts understood it, played a role in becoming disturbed um, by, uh, you know, with respect to how he or she responded to the environment around, around them. Was it a permanent category or would they come in and out of this category? Would an emotionally disturbed child, would they, you know, heal or get fixed? That's a great question. I think very rarely did children who were deemed emotionally disturbed kind of outgrow the category entirely. Even the people that I talk about in my book who were perhaps among the most optimistic about their ability to salvage, and that's a term they used, children that everybody else had given up on, admitted that most of the time they weren't able to completely make the children normal again. So I think that really once a child was deemed disturbed, it was in a way a stain that maybe stayed with them throughout their entire childhood and perhaps for the rest of their lives. So looking back at it, a different thing you just said, it's a way of thinking about people and it also shaped policy. So mm -hmm. how did this category of emotionally disturbed, how did that really impact policy and how we think about these children and what we should be doing as a society for them? So it really shaped where they went physically and who paid for it to be quite simplistic about it. So the category of emotionally disturbed children came about at the same time as the creation of these residential treatment centers for children, which um, they also called RTCs. And these were very small, typically uh, facilities sometimes that took place in places that had formerly been residential houses. Um, sometimes they had a few dozen children, but there were many that had only 10 to 20, and they had a lot of staff members. Many of them sort of arose from the ashes of other congregate institutions for children. So just as institutions like orphanages were becoming much less popular, there was sort of a group of leftover children that were being discovered who couldn't really stay in orphanages anymore. They were shutting down. But at the same time, the child guidance movement, which was trying to identify mildly troubled children and treat them in the community, these children really couldn't be treated in that setting either. And so in the you know, effort to identify more children who were troubled in the community, but also close down some of these larger congregate institutions, there was this in-between group of children who were identified who couldn't really be managed in the community, um, needed some sort of inpatient care. And so it's sort of in the, in the cracks between these different groups emerged this idea of the emotionally disturbed child who could be cared for at one of these residential treatment centers. And I know this sounds odd, but it, it's almost as if these places and this type of person were entirely dependent on each other. One couldn't exist without the other. So did and, the, sorry, did that, the diagnosis, did the emotional disturbed that category, did that create RTCs or did the RTCs create the category of emotionally disturbed? I think it's a chicken and egg situation. What I can point to looking at the, at the um, 
at the archival sources is that they really came about together. The same people who were discussing this new pathological category of child were the, the child mental health professionals who were creating RTCs for this new type of child. So this was all the same group of people speaking in the same language, using the same semi-Freudian terminology. They were certainly psychoanalytically trained. Many of them had worked in outpatient child guidance facilities in the past, but this was a relatively closed world of um, mental health experts and child welfare experts who were using the same language to talk about the same group of children and how to deal with them. Um, and then going back to your question about policy, I think you know sometimes we can think about policy in terms of laws or large movements, but I actually think that emotional disturbance and RTCs changed a lot of locally based policy. And so these places where children would stay sometimes for up to two years, which by the way, was actually a relatively short stay compared to children who might have stayed at an orphanage or um, another kind of facility for the majority of their childhood. But children who stayed there, you know, these were very, very expensive services. There were often twice as many staff members as there were children. And so where did the money come for all of this? Certainly some of these centers were private and uh, you know, patients' uh, families had to pay. So for example, at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, um, the Southern School was the child-centered uh, division of the, of the larger renowned Menninger Clinic. And um, you know, it was uh, certainly a, a private institution to which Tonied, you know, white middle class or upper middle class um, Americans sent their children, often from out of state, to get care. Now, most RTCs were not like this. Some of them, you know, actually many of them, I would say, um, attracted children who were referred there from juvenile judges. So a lot of these children. Uh, regardless of race, were from quite poor families and came from the local surrounding area. So their parents certainly couldn't pay for them. And so who paid? Um, and I think thinking about who pays helps you think about policy. And so first of all, sometimes states paid, um, sometimes philanthropies paid. So there were very large philanthropic organizations that poured millions of dollars um, you know, into, into these kinds of institutions. And then actually community chests or other community funds paid. Um, and so nowadays we think of United Way, which is really a, a large national organization comprised of all of the local community chests that previously were critical to funding a local town or a local community's um, philanthropic and other needs. And so there was a lot of local funding for these programs. And I think in terms of policy, that really shows um, the fact that, that people felt that these children were of the community and ought to be supported by the community, both the town, the county, and the state. Um, and that you know, they were worthy of, um, they were worthy of sympathy um, and they were worthy of you know, treatment that cost a lot of money. And so I think thinking about where the money was flowing from really tells you that this was perceived as a priority. And I think the other thing that really shows you what a priority this kind of really intensive care was is the fact that 
these centers had really an outside an outsized presence in national media. There were television specials about them. Many, many articles in magazines like Time and Life with extensive photo essays. And remember, some of these centers had only 20 kids or a few dozen kids. So clearly, they, you know, this was perceived in some way as a, a topic of national interest and a topic that um, really should be of interest to any American um, with children. So it sounds like the creation of this category really led to big changes in policy in terms of how we think about who deserves treatment, what kind of treatment, and where this treatment should take place. And you're telling a really fascinating story of, of these RTCs that offered so many services, not just to rich kids, and not, not just to categories of privilege, but that anyone who was seen as emotionally disturbed suddenly was seen as worthy of this intense investment. I think that's true, but with a really notable exception. So I talked a lot about socioeconomic status, but what I haven't really addressed is race. Now, the majority of these residential treatment centers had official policies stating that they were open to children from any racial or ethnic background. And there was actually a very large study um, that was done by the Child Welfare League of America in which these uh, social workers traveled to over 15 RTCs and wrote detailed reports on the demographics of the children there. This was published in 1952 um, and got their official policies. And again, the vast majority of centers that they were, they had no racially based admissions policies. And yet, at the majority of these centers by the 1950s, most had never admitted a single black child. And it was very hard to find out why. Um, I was able to uncover a few clues. There were some centers that stated that they just hadn't come across an appropriate child yet, which of course is a sort of ridiculous assertion. A very interesting one was uh, one of the centers in a, a Chicago suburb stated that they were uh, they would you know they were unsure how a minority child would fit in with the rest of the children there, and another stated that because of the way the treatment was structured, in which children lived in sort of proto families with house mothers and house house fathers, really playing. Um, this sort of in loco parentis role to try to fix all of the family issues that children had prior to arrival. Well, if we had black kids, we would need to have black house mothers and black house fathers, and that would present a whole staffing problem. So really, you know, the more you dig into it, the more you come up with a, you know, a vast variety of excuses. And this isn't terribly surprising because even though the majority of people running these centers were very liberal, um, known to be you know, political liberals, this is still the 1950s. And again, there is state funding, there is philanthropic funding. Notably, the early centers were not in the South. They were in the Northeast, they were in California, and a lot were in the Midwest. So they weren't in states that were necessarily espousing, for example, school segregation, but this was still the 1940s, 50s, and early 60s. And so despite these policies that sounded enlightened, very few of these centers actually admitted Black or uh, Latino children. There were a few really notable exceptions, including a center uh, outside New York City called Wiltwick, which actually 
had uh, Eleanor Roosevelt as one of its patrons, which specifically was founded by uh, liberal uh, justices like Justine Wise Polier with the goal of helping uh, black and other non-white children get the same kind of expensive intensive care that white children were getting everywhere else. That's a fascinating story. So I guess that's one way we know that these RTCs were really kind of good or considered uh, considered a positive thing in as much as they were hoarded only for essentially white populations. Exactly. And so, you know, where were the black children going? Well, a lot of them were going to these places called reform schools, also known as training schools, which were these really punitive work-based places for children who had been deemed delinquent. Now, plenty of white children went there too. Um, another difference between the two institutions is that RTCs often took school-aged children, whereas training schools were really intended more for teenagers. Um, but people who went to training schools you know, were often physically abused, which was not a feature of RTCs, which were strongly opposed to any kind of corporal punishment. And the quote-unquote treatment was typically limited to one mental health professional for up to a thousand children. Um, and, and really their issues were deemed, uh, you know, related to rule breaking, right? Or law breaking, juvenile delinquency. Whereas at RTCs, that same behavior, even if still, you know, the term delinquency was still used, was really deemed sort of behavior reflective of um, a deeper emotional disturbance and worthy of intensive psychiatric care. And so as RTCs began to emerge, white children and especially more well-off white children or children who happened to be located near an RTC would end up there. But most of the black kids were still being sent to training schools which were typically run by the state. So therapy for white children who misbehave and discipline and punishment for their black counterparts. Absolutely. It's a story we've heard before. In fact, um, Colson Whitehead, the celebrated novelist, just wrote uh, his most recent novel, The Nickel Boys, which came out, uh, I think, a year or so ago. And I just had the pleasure of reading. And it was like reading a novel that had been written about part of my book because it was about um, a, a young Black boy who had committed really a non exceedingly minor infraction and was shipped off to one of these places um, where abuse was rampant. Um, and it was pretty, you know, even though I knew that it was a novel, it was still really hard to read about this, you know, specific boy's story. It's a fantastic novel. I recommend it. Yeah. So what happened to the RTCs? I mean, I, I can't send a patient there now, I reckon. So where did they go? And what can we learn from the kind of care they delivered? So believe it or not, they do actually still exist. The majority of places that I describe in my book still exist in some way, um, but they exist in sort of a new ecosystem of child mental health. So starting in the 1970s, of course, um, you know, historians of medicine are familiar with the rise of third party insurance. You won't be surprised to know that once people were getting insured, insurances did not want to pay for children to stay at these facilities for two years. So you start really seeing the rise of small mental health units in hospitals where children go only for crisis admissions. Um, you also start seeing the rise of for-profit institutions, sometimes where there's a lot of physical abuse, in some ways sort of, lean, you know, 
making them a little more like the uh, the training or reform schools I had mentioned before. So nobody wanted to pay for them anymore. And of course, by the 1970s, there is understandably a big move toward treatment in the community. Now, interestingly, these children, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, had been defined in some ways by their inability to be quote unquote managed in the community. And now in the 1970s and really by the 1980s, there's an enormous push that everyone should be treated in the community as much as possible. However, there are still children who, no matter how hard we try, at certain points are not able to be treated in the community. And so these centers existed and they continue to exist. And in fact, the number of RTCs in the 1980s continued to grow, but they started really struggling for funding and they had to expand their missions. So what, what I found is that the majority of places that I studied actually opened a whole spectrum of services. They had partial uh, hospital programs. They had community-based drop-in centers. They offered outpatient services. So they, they sort of thought about it as a spectrum of care with inpatient care being you know, only a last resort um, required for a limited period of time. There also, you know, we saw in the 19, sorry, in the uh, 1990s and the 2000s, the rise of the troubled teen industry, which was sort of a parallel group of facilities where uh, really desperate parents would send their teenagers. This was mostly white teenagers and these places do still exist. They would be kidnapped by strangers in the middle of the night, often without any warning from their parents and shipped off to programs sometimes where they had to backpack in the wilderness, um, you know, for uh, months with minimal supplies. As children died of, of the abuses they endured on these trips and in these facilities. And so, you know, a lot of the children who might have gone to RTCs in the past were sort of going to some of these other places. Um, they were going to these for-profit places. They were going to these wilderness programs. Many, many black children were going to jail, right? So we see the rise of the school to prison pipeline. And it is of course, always the black children who remain um, focused in the juvenile justice system as opposed to the therapeutic. Uh, approach to mental disorders. And even today, the juvenile justice system is really in the United States, the largest uh, child mental health system, um, which is a, a pretty sad statement and disproportionately treats children of color, quote unquote, treats. Um, and then, you know, interestingly, there are certainly were a population of children whom today we might call uh, autistic or we might label as having intellectual disabilities. By and large, RTCs actually tried to weed out these children as they were thought to have different pathologies. But certainly some of the children who were at RTCs had various learning or other intellectual disabilities. And as autism became really, um, better defined uh, as a category in the 70s and 80s. And this disability movement started pushing, uh, again, you know, children with disabilities living in the community rather than being locked away in facilities. That was another group of children who were sort of siphoned away um, from RTCs because their parents were demanding home-based care. So really by the 70s and 80s, we start seeing the fracturing of this concept of emotional disturbance. And we have 
white, quote unquote, mentally ill children who have sort of crisis hospitalizations. The term mental illness is also very specific in time. Um, we have criminalized uh, largely black and Latino children, and we have children with various learning disorders or with autism. So the concept is really fractured. And as a result, you know, the the political power of emotional disturbance as a concept that people can rally around and give money to and, and have a therapeutic uh, solution for also fractures. And, you know, frankly, the other issue that I didn't bring up before is that suddenly, and this may sound silly, but suddenly in the late 60s, people realized that Black kids can be emotionally disturbed too. There's a big congressional report that comes out um, declaring essentially that there are a million uh, untreated emotionally disturbed children who have never been treated and are unrecognized by the system. And these tiny RTCs are just no match for this newly perceived crisis in child mental health. So you have the group of emotionally disturbed children who are being sort of divided and fractured, and you have this new quote unquote crisis that is announced where these tiny you know, resource heavy centers can, cannot compete at all. Um, and so this concept really sort of dissolves as a politically um, motivating concept and as a meaningful diagnostic um, concept that organizes care. Sorry, that was a long answer. You kind of told us about the afterlifes of RTC and how that became different institutions that fulfilled different roles. And then what happened to emotionally disturbed and how that became different mentally ill versus criminalization and so on. Is it, does it sound like, you know, that the term emotionally disturbed was so popular that it was expanded beyond recognition and then kind of lost its valence? So that if, if at some point you had a narrow definition of emotionally, of emotionally disturbed and these children could be treated at RTC, if everyone now is emotionally disturbed and we have a crisis or a pandemic of emotional disturbances, then you know why bother with the RTC? It's too much and, and then it kind of explodes and loses its political power. You know, I never thought about it that way, but I think that's absolutely correct. Oh, it's, an it's a very interesting story, like a, a story about how definitions change reality and how, you know, we harness these concepts to change political, uh, to really create political meaning and value. You so. know, it's not something that I ever intended to write. It really just sort of came out of close reading of primary sources. And I sort of observed how the language they were using was very powerful um, and how I also thought what they were doing in these centers was really quite remarkable. You know, when you think about the history of mental health in the United States in the mid 20th century, which is my narrow, but you know, that, which has really been my focus to date. Also, you know, I've done other research that's not focused on children. We think of a really dark time right, where adults are locked up in these enormous state mental hospitals getting very minimal care, uh, an era where psychosurgery becomes popular, an era where desperate physicians are using various shock therapies um, because they're really trying to help patients in any way possible. Um, and, an area, and, and also an era in which wealthy Americans are able to access psychoanalysis and various you know, uh, types of talk therapy um, when they don't have to go, you know, and be hospitalized. And so interestingly, this is really, 
in some ways I, I found, I was really struck by the optimism of these child mental health professionals that they could, if not fix these children, at least meaningfully help them so that they could be reintegrated into their communities. And, you know, these individuals that we're seeing, you know, everybody else has given up on these children, but we're going to give it a go. We're going to see what we can do to help. And they were realistic. They didn't think that they were going to cure the children, you know, and I think, and they didn't really make claims to do that. In fact, part that was actually part of their downfall because in the 1970s, people said, okay, show us the data. And they hadn't really collected the data. They hadn't really documented, you know, what did it mean to be improved? They told a lot of individual stories, really striking stories about children who went on to have families of their own and would come back and visit and were very grateful to the organizations. They also talked about children they considered failures who went on to commit crimes or to commit suicide even. Um, but what they didn't do is really try and rigorously keep track of the outcomes they were seeing. And that came back to bite them because people wanted evidence if they were going to pay for this expensive therapy and RTCs didn't have the evidence to show them. That's really interesting. So there's a period of time in which we have these really resource intense kind of full of dedicated professionals who really want to help children, but it's outside their communities and in a residential way. And then it really loses its momentum. So why does this story matter, Debbie? What, what can we learn from the story of these RTCs, their successes and their failures? I think there are a couple of really important legacies. Um, you know, even though RTCs never became, you know, a standard means of managing um, mental health issues in children, I don't see this as one of the stories of uh, a medical treatment that failed and is interesting for various reasons. I think actually residential treatment centers helped develop the concept of milieu therapy in the United States, which is absolutely still in use. So we didn't talk about this before, but really, in addition to providing casework or, or talk therapy with parents and individual psychiatric analy uh, analytic treatment um, with individual children, these children lived together. And the idea was that everything they did in that center should be therapeutic. So you had, uh, you know, it, there are fascinating sources. I have a book in which one of the baseball games played by the children is dissected. Um, this child wouldn't let the other go first. Then they got into a fight. Uh, and this is how the counselor tried to uh, play the children's strengths, you know, so that they could help each other and learn more about how to properly socialize. So it was really felt um, that the people working at these centers could impart therapeutic meaning into literally every part of the day from play to meals to bedtime, um, from interactions with passers-by, even interactions with people like the gardener or the janitor. I mean, they really took it to an extreme. Um, and so I think that was sort of a, a very interesting aspect of it. They, they actually wrote a, one of the most famous uh, books ever written about residential treatment is called The Other 23 Hours. And that's intended to refer to what happens when the child's not in their one hour of therapy a week? 
Well, they actually felt that the other 23 hours were perhaps even more important to helping the child. Um, and milieu therapy wasn't new, right? It had, if we can, you know, we can go back and look at, for example, Took's retreat in 19th century England and the idea that the environment uh, and social interactions can be therapeutic in and of themselves. Um, and certainly there were efforts during uh, the Second World War, especially in England, um, to really beef up this new concept of social psychiatry um, and talking amidst groups. But I think that here in the United States, residential treatment centers were really critical to the growth and the, and the maturation of milieu therapy. And I think that legacy is absolutely still in effect. Um, I think we can learn a really important couple of lessons from this story, even from the failures of this story. First, I really frankly, even though I try very hard to be balanced in my book, I can't help but be impressed by the optimism with which these professionals um, saw their real, they felt that this was their calling. They felt that even though everybody else had given up on these children, that they were still worthy of help. Um, and as a physician and just a citizen and historian, I'm very attracted to that concept, that idea that nobody is, is beyond help. Um, I think that's a really important concept to remember. And I think that today um, we really find that especially you know, black and brown lives, um, ch children and otherwise are especially devalued. And I'd like to see us remember that every life has value and that nobody is completely beyond help. The other thing I find really important about this story is that this was a time, you know, communities, states, philanthropies poured money into helping these people, into helping these children. There was a real concept of, you know, the, the idea that the community owed it, you know, to, help, to these children to help them, that these were their children. Um, and you can even see this in, in the literature, um, you know, the children were deeply actually embedded in their local communities, those who were at RTCs. They often had sort of big brother um, or big sisters uh, outside the institution. There were community groups who came in. Children who were doing better often did some jobs in the community or may have uh, started to attend school in the community. So they really tried to impart this idea of community embeddedness in both directions. And I think we've now gotten to a place where instead of them being everybody's children, they're now nobody's children, right? There is no funding. There is really, really minimal funding for child mental health. Again, the juvenile justice system is our large, largest child mental health provider and doesn't provide much mental health care, if any. Um, and, you know, there are, there is an enormous, um, you know, lack of child psychiatrists in this country. So it's very hard for even children with resources to get the help they need. Um, and so I think this idea of community responsibility for the vulnerable is, is a critical one that I take from the story. Thank you, that's fascinating. So maybe you can comment a little bit about your maybe somewhat unusual path. So you're a physician, you're an oncologist, you treat patients with cancer, and participate in clinical trials for your patients. So how do you connect that to this book you've written about children and who are emotionally disturbed? Uh, and maybe comment on, you know, how does thinking about this 
change how, who you are as a doctor? That's a great question, especially coming from another clinician historian who writes about children and takes care of adults. I think the first thing to say is that um, even though I certainly think all of these aspects of my life do influence each other, I also just really enjoy all of them. And sometimes they don't have to connect and I think that's okay. I really love being a historian. I love thinking very deeply about recreating a, a moment in the past and thinking about how people experienced it. And I really love treating patients. And sometimes the two have absolutely nothing to do with, with each other. And I, I think that's okay. I de definitely had some of my, some mentors who thought I was a little bit crazy when I told them I wanted to be an adult cancer doctor instead of a psychiatrist, because I found, you know, psychiatrists tend in my limited experience, but I've interviewed a lot of them and I certainly thought I was gonna be one, but I've found psychiatrists to be very interested in the humanities, very historically minded, interested in, in introspection about their own field and where it's come from. I've had the pleasure of giving a lot of talks um, to groups of mental health care professionals. And I, I love doing it because I get great questions. The audience is really engaged. They, they don't act defensive about their own history, which many doctors do, right? Because we don't wanna be told as doctors that what we used to do is wrong. Um, sometimes doctors are, are even embarrassed by what their field did 20 years ago. So, you know, certainly it would have been a lot easier in some ways for me to practice in the same field that I write about. But it turns out that I really love taking care of adults with cancer. And a lot of my practice is also, is, it turns out to be, and I have actually never made this uh, connection before, so I'm grateful for it. I do two things as an oncologist. I take care of patients with lung cancer and I also um, help run a phase one clinical trials program. And what does that mean? Phase one clinical trials are how we first start to test brand new medicines for patients with cancer. The vast majority of patients who give of their time and their bodies and, are, and really and of themselves to participate in these trials are patients who don't have any standard treatment options left. And so in some ways, I think there are some parallels to my actors, um, but I think my patients are, are really much more equal participants in the decision to get therapy and in, in the ways in which we interact, although there's certainly still a major power imbalance. Um, I think that at the end of the day, my favorite part of um, being a doctor is getting to know my patients deeply as people and helping them um, you know, at their most difficult moments and hopefully them getting to know me as a human as well. And I think as a historian, the thing that excites me the most is to get a glimpse of what individual humans thought and did at a given moment in time. When I'm able to find a story about something a child did or said, you know, a little, I, I can remember when I was at the Kansas State Archives in Topeka, I was looking at a log book from the Menninger Clinic. And this was a book that the non-professional child workers kept sort of signing out to each other when one person was going off shift and somebody else was coming on shift. And you, there were the most, you know, wild stories. Tommy, um, 
while I was downstairs, turned on all of the faucets and flooded the whole upstairs. And then Susie was jumping on the bed and everybody stole all of the chocolate and ate everything and got sick and threw up. And, you know, there's some aspects of, of these stories that are absolutely universal. Um, and, and some of them that are just so specific that it makes you, it's hackneyed, but realize that history is so much more than large movements or politics. And it, it's really at that individual level, thinking about what individual humans experience that I most enjoy being a historian. So I think in that way, um, there's a lot of connection with what I do as a physician. And then lastly, I think I would say that being a historian, I hope gives me more humility as a physician. Doctors are not super humble. We're not really good at that. Um, and I think, you know, being a historian helps me recognize how much of the, how little medicine we actually know, how often um, medical theories change, our language changes, our categories change. And this is not just true in psychiatry. You know, our, our understanding of certain cancers has changed vastly over the just the past few decades. And we've ping ponged from thinking we were going to solve cancer with one certain approach to another approach to a third approach. And of course, there is no magic bullet. Um, but our categories have changed as well. And I think that sort of perspective um, gives me an additional, I hope, humility to recognize that just because I'm giving the newest and greatest treatment, it doesn't mean that it, you know, there won't be something different that pops up, or maybe that treatment won't turn out to be as great as I think it is. I think that probably makes me a better doctor. I know that my patients would rather uh, I not say things like, I don't know. But there is a lot I don't know. And I try to honestly tell them that when I don't, because I think they deserve to know exactly what we do know and what we're not sure about. That's really interesting, Debbie. And I think what, what you say about history is also so applicable to medicine because, you know, the history is so much of it is the stories of people and medicine is exactly the same. I mean, so much of medicine is just the telling and retelling of stories. And that's what we do as clinicians as we elicit stories, we interpret stories, we package it into a story that makes sense. So, I mean, it's, it's always we're handing off stories and I, I certainly see how you can connect that to your historical work. I love how you stated that. That was great. Well, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I hope that you're, thank you so much for your time. And I hope that the readers will go ahead and, uh, and read your fascinating book on emotionally disturbed children. And I appreciate talking to you. You've been a wonderful friend and support for so many years. And I hope everybody goes out and reads your new book on the history of child abuse um, from UNC Press, which is sure to be a fascinating read for all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.